You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, Lord, thank you. Um, thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the good news um, of the age that we live in, that you have brought about um, you have brought about the, the new heavenly age and that you have, you have come to earth uh, as Christ and in the Holy Spirit and you reign. And so please bless this time. That would be encouraging. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Would y'all mind um, closing the door on your way in? Thanks. All right. So favorite topic, talking about heaven, talking about Paul's theology of heaven. So excited. So um, today, last week, first off, the premise of this class is what we're gunning for is heaven consciousness. So what we mean by that is that to come uh, to a place in your spiritual life where heaven is so much a part of your perspective that it just factors into your daily life. You know, the decisions you make, the way you respond to frustrations, your patience with when things are not going your way, uh, your sense of hope when, uh, when bad things arise, uh, that heaven is just the air you breathe. And so the premise, uh, you know, is that I, I, because of my oldest child, when he passed away in 2013, because he lives in heaven, I started thinking about heaven so much all the time in a way that felt almost bizarre. And in that year, I started reading Paul's letters, and I noticed that Paul integrates heaven into everything in his letters. It just pops up all over the place. And so I say, I found a friend in Paul. And so this class is looking at Paul's theology of heaven uh, and how it... um, how it helps us to have a heavenly mindedness, kind of based on Colossians 3, uh, verse 1. uh, Since you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. So this heavenly mindedness that pervades our life. And so last week we looked at what we would call future heaven, what we typically think of when we think about heaven, which is... um, which is... uh, you know, when you die and you go... You know, go to be with Christ, and the second coming of Christ, and the new heavens, the new earth, and the final judgment, and the resurrection of the dead, and all those kinds of things. Um, that's what we, we talked about last week in terms of future heaven. This week, we're going to talk about the present reality of heaven on earth. That's why I keep on uh, giving Belinda Carlisle so much love, because she tells you, you know what that's worth? Heaven is a place on earth. And, and, and with Jesus coming, it, it truly is. She has good Pauline eschatology. Eschatology is a word for theology of heaven. All right, so um, so we want to start out here. And by the way, I have to tell you, this has been perhaps the coolest thing I've ever studied. Uh, I did a couple, couple of independent studies in seminary on this, and it's really, really difficult, but it has been like life-changing. And so what we're going to see today is that for Paul... The, his interpretation and understanding of the Christ event, I mean, use that word Christ event a lot, Christ event refers to the coming, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. His interpretation of the Christ event means that heaven has come to earth, okay? Heaven has come to earth. And so if you're a believer, you live in heaven on earth. It's a little more complicated than that. But we're going to start out with this. We're going to start out. And by the way, we have these worksheets. Grab yourself a worksheet. You're going to need it. Um, Old Testament expectations. So, here's the thing. When we think about the end of time, 
in the New Testament, here in the age of the New Covenant? What is the event that we are looking toward? What is the, the event that we point to? Second coming of Christ, exactly. We are looking to the second coming of Christ. That's kind of the event. That's the end point that we in a New Covenant age are looking towards. Well, Jews, they were looking towards the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is kind of the Old Testament equivalent of the second coming of Christ. And so... So we're gonna. So you can kind of break down. I see on your worksheet here. You can kind of break down time periods in the Bible to one: the present evil age. And so the present evil age kind of starts with sin, with Adam and Eve in the garden. And the present evil age is going to run all the way to the second coming of Christ. We presently live in the present evil age. All right. Okay. So in the Old Testament, they had this expectation that there would be. The day of the Lord. Okay, the day of the Lord would be a divine visitation. It would be the end of time, and God, in His fullness, would come to the earth. And there were a number of expectations of events or characteristics of the day of the Lord, things that were going to happen. We'll talk about those in a second. But so there would be the day of the Lord, and that would be like the second coming of Christ. And then there would be this period afterwards, which we call the new heavens and the new earth, but they would refer to it as the age to come. The age to come. So if we're making like an analogy here, in the New Testament, we live in the, new, the, the, the present evil age, and then we're waiting for the second coming of Christ, Christ comes down, heaven comes to earth, and then after that is the new heavens and the new earth. Old Testament... The language used, same concepts, the, 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 the language used was the day of the Lord. That is when God comes to the earth, there will be a judgment, there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there will be all these things, and then there will be the age to come. That is the existence of heaven on earth. And so we tend to think of what chapter, what, cha- or what, what book of the Bible do we tend to associate with the new heavens and the new earth in the New Testament? Revelation, right? Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two has all this language, all this, all these depictions and car- uh, depictions of heaven on earth, right? The city of God, the streets of gold, you know, Jesus wiping away our tears, all these kind of things. Well, that same content is in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah. In Isaiah, you have very similar depictions of heaven on earth. The lion will lay down with the lamb and the baby with the adder and all that kind of stuff. This is talking about the age to come, when heaven is on earth, all right? And so here's the thing. Here, there are certain expectations that came with the day of the Lord. So a first expectation... Oh, by the way, are we tracking so far? Okay, good. You can interrupt me, although we don't have much time. (laughs) All right. So, um, so... First expectation was a divine visitation. God, in His glory, would come to the earth. Ezekiel 37, 24-27, it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place, my dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their Myths forevermore. So God is going to be present on the earth. That's expectation number one. Expectation number two is that of divine judgment. I'm going to tell you, if you're going to do a bunch of reading of, of Day of the Lord content in the Old Testament, it is going to scare your pants off. 
because it is all about divine judgment. That's not the only thing it's about, but that is a lot of what it's about. And so, in Isaiah 13, 9-11, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not, will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud." I mean, I tell you. But that is part of it. Part of, uh, part of the expectation is there will be a divine judgment. All right, next expectation is there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Joel chapter 2, 28 through 31. And it shall come to pass afterward, this is after the day of the Lord, or you know, uh, concurrent with the day of the Lord, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there is an expectation of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Hmm. Anybody ever seen this quoted in the New Testament? Where is this quoted in the New Testament? Acts. Acts chapter 2. What event? Pentecost. Pentecost. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. Let's keep on going. Um, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, uh, I'm just going to summarize this, but you see in Isaiah when it's talking about the Messiah, Jesus was the Messiah, so prophecies about the Messiah, there is, a, there is an expectation that the Holy Spirit will be upon him and there will be an outpouring of the Spirit. Finally, number four, there is an expectation of the resurrection of the dead, a resurrection of the body, and this is for everyone. And so you see you know, one text here, Daniel 12, 2, it says, Many of those who sleep in the, in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So you remember last week when we talked about the resurrection of the body, we said that both believers and non-believers will be raised in the body, and, uh, and believers will be um, resurrected in the body to glory, and non-believers in the body to judgment. And so with that being said, here are the expectations, right? Okay. So now things get really, really cool. All right, so Paul is a good Jew. Paul knows these expectations, right? And there was, you know, there, especially you see in the first century, there was lots of messianic expectation, and there was lots of talk of the age to come. When will the age to come arrive? When will the day of the Lord come? Well, here's what happens to Paul. Paul, obviously, and Jesus' life, he is not buying that Jesus is the Messiah. He is not buying the Christian faith. He thinks it is false. But something happens to Paul. Everything changes for Paul. And where does everything change for Paul? Damascus Road, when he encounters Jesus after the resurrection. And so when Paul encounters Jesus on, uh, on the road to Damascus, the dominoes of the day of the Lord start to fall. All right, so it says here, this is uh, George Ladd, Theology of the New Testament. 
Thus, all the essentially essentials of Paul's theology, Jesus as the Messiah, the gospel for the Gentiles, justification by faith as against to works of the law, are contained in his Damascus Road experience. He says this in Galatians. Paul says, the revelation that I received from Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. So basically, uh, this is so cool. So when Jesus, uh, if you're not quite familiar with it, on the road to Damascus, Paul encounters Jesus. And it is what we would call a theophany. A theophany is God himself in his glory appears to Paul. And if you look at the language of the way that that theophany is written in a liter- from, from a literary standpoint, you see that the language and the phraseology and, the, and all of that is very similar to Isaiah chapter 6. Anybody know what happens in Isaiah chapter 6? Yeah, Isaiah has a theophany. He has a direct encounter with the glory of God. And the reason that Luke, the author of Acts, does that is he is, I mean, we know that Jesus is God, but he is kind of making even more clear through the language that Paul, or sorry, yeah, that Paul is having an encounter with God. Okay? And so, two boxes of the day of the Lord expectations are checked. Because, who can figure this out for me? Give me, give me one of the two expe- boxes that's checked. We said resurrection of the body. We said outpouring the Holy Spirit. We said divine visitation. We said divine judgment. Outpouring the Holy Spirit. Not, not outpouring the Holy Spirit. That's going to come. But divine visitation. Because he is seeing Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So God has visited the earth in his glory. And, you know, the way that Jesus, let's say, I don't know if he did, but let's say that Paul had an encounter with Jesus you know, earlier in Jesus' ministry. At this moment, Jesus is kind of like at the... Um, what? <laughs> transfiguration, thank you. At the transfiguration, Jesus it reveals himself in a different way. It's like his divine glory is pouring out, okay? Well, on the road to Damascus, Paul sees him this way. He's like, okay, God has come to the earth in his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. What's the second? What's the second box that's checked? Resurrection. Not resurrection of the dead. Because this is after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is in his glory, but he's also in a bodily form. And so Paul sees, holy cow, Jesus was risen from the dead in the body. The resurrection of the dead has occurred. And so you see that Paul is going to refer to, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, and, uh, and other places too, he's going to refer to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. It's like Jesus is the first installment of the resurrection of the dead, and then at the second, the second coming of Christ, that will be the second installment when we are resurrected from the dead in glorious bodies. And so everything changes for Paul on the road to Damascus. And so now, with this recognition that there's been a divine visitation, there's been a resurrection from the dead, he looks back to the cross. And what part, what's the other, what's the expectation that's fulfilled on the cross? Well, what's that? Removing the need of the law? Not, no, no, remember, keep in mind, what were the four expectations? Divine judgment. He sees the cross as an installment of divine judgment. Now keep it in mind, he's not saying the whole thing has occurred. Because obviously we're still sinning. There's still death. 
There's still evil in the world. The whole thing hasn't come. But what Paul is saying is that the day of the Lord has partially occurred in the Christ event. So then, this is before the Pentecost. So then the Pentecost occurs, and it all comes together. It all comes together. The, the, the um, resurrection of the dead has occurred in a partial manner because Jesus has been risen from the dead. The divine judgment has occurred because our sins are judged on the cross, but on Jesus instead of us. Uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was expected in Joel 2 and other places as well, that has occurred. Um, and I think that's it. There you go, resurrection of the dead. So Paul sees that the day of the Lord has occurred in one partial installment. And so that means that the age to come is upon us. The age to come is here. So there is this, I totally abandoned my outline. Um, Here's Paul on the road, there it is. Okay, so this is key, this is super key. I think this is an important, this this is important for every Christian. I think this is particularly important for parents. Because kids are like, wait a minute, I hear all these promises of God, but I'm still sinning. I hear that Jesus has come and He's defeated sin and death, but I'm still suffering. Understanding the now and the not yet is so key. So this is called the now and the not yet. And what it is basically demonstrating is that the present evil age that started with, the, with sin, that is going to continue all the way to Christ's return. But, in the middle of that, at the Christ event, the day of the Lord has occurred in a partial manner, and so the age to come is here and now. And so what that means is that, in fact, according to Belinda Carlisle, heaven is a place on earth. It all comes back to Belinda. Um, so, So, anyhow, get excited. So this, friends, is part of why... Paul is so heavenly minded. And we're going to get into this more next week. It's because he says, if you're a believer in Christ, he says this in Colossians chapter 1, that you have been transferred into the age to come. You've been transferred into the age to come. That's why in Philippians 3, when he talks about us being citizens of heaven, he's saying, when he's saying you're a citizen of heaven, He's saying that's where you actually live. And uh, this, will be, this will, we'll get all up in this next week. But if citizenship in the Roman world, that's where you actually are a citizen of. So Paul never really lived in Rome. But when he's on trial near Jerusalem, he says, boop, 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 boop. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Roman citizen. And so they have to take him to Rome for him to have his trial there because since he has Roman citizenship, which he talks about that all a bunch in the book of Acts, he, he, it's as if he is a, a resident of Rome. So when he talks about your citizenship is in heaven, in Philippians 3, he is saying if you're a believer in Christ, you have been transferred into this new heavenly age. And, you know, that's where your true citizenship is. Now, you are in vacation. You're in vacation or on holiday, if we're European and sophisticated. You're on holiday in the present evil age, but your true home is now in heaven. And so that is part of why Paul um, is so heavenly minded. And 
All the things that have made him so heavenly minded are true of us. They're true of us. We live in the kingdom of God. So, now let's look at some different paradigms that Paul uses to describe the age to come. The term that I use, I'm going to use the term the new heavenly age because there are three primary paradigms that Paul uses to describe this in his letters. Lord have mercy, I'm going to take a two-hour nap this afternoon. (laughs) All right. I've even got like food for the fuel. Um, all right, so the first paradigm that Paul uses to describe the age to, the, the age to come and the new heavenly age is the new creation. Who, anybody, anybody tell me where, when you hear the new creation? Anybody got a verse? Anybody got a chapter? Where do we hear about new creation in Paul's letters? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. We tend to think about that in individual terms, like, oh, Jesus has made me a new creature. Well, actually, there's a much bigger eschatological connotation to that. He is saying if anyone is in union with Christ, which that's what happens when you're saved, you come into union with Christ, then you live in the new creation. And so when you, you're going to see different places in Paul's letters where he has this paradigm of new creation that involves Jesus being the new Adam, us being born again into a new creation, and that we are now residents of the new creation. Everybody knows, not everybody, but a lot of people know, Ephesians 2.10, For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He has prepared in advance for you to do. When He's talking about being created in Christ Jesus, He's not talking about you being born naturally. He's talking about you being born again as as a Christian in union with Christ. So as a product of you now being a resident of the new creation, you will do good works that are befitting a new creation. When he talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about um, when he talks about Jesus being the new Adam, he talks about this in Romans 5. What he's saying is, yeah, Jesus created the physical world, and then the present evil age, Adam was kind of like the federal head of that, 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 um, of that age. But now, Jesus, having been resurrected from the dead, he is the new Adam of the new age. You know, before you were a believer, you were under the old Adam. That was the head of that age. But not any longer, you are now under the new Adam. That is how, who you are identified with and who you are under. So you're going to see this language of new creation, and he's talking about the present existence of the age to come. Second, he uses the term the age of the spirit versus the age of the flesh. So Romans chapter 8, the word spirit is used a ton. Sometimes it's referring to like the Holy Spirit as an individual person of the Trinity. And sometimes he's talking about the age to come that is upon us as the age of the spirit. Uh, With the emphasis being that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us and God is present in this earth through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He says in Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh. He's speaking in eschatological terms. He's not talking in individual terms. He is saying, you are no longer a member of the present evil age. But you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. When he says in the Spirit, he's saying you are now in the new heavenly age, the age to come, which in this paradigm he's talking about as the age of the Spirit. Another paradigm that he uses is the kingdom of God. 
Now this, you know, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God in the Gospels, that's, that's one of Jesus' primary paradigms that he's talking about. Jesus is announcing the same reality. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is here. And you hear Jesus talk, if you do a, do a biblical theology of the Gospels, that Jesus is talking about the kingdom. Sometimes Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God as here and now. And sometimes he is talking about the kingdom of God as a future reality. It's a both and because of the now and the not yet. Right? And so you see the same thing in Paul. Paul, uh, he says in Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Present reality. The kingdom of God is here now. But... In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, he says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, talking about the resurrection of the dead, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, second installment of the resurrection of the dead, that's us, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So he's now talking about the kingdom of God as a future reality. And so the reason I bring up all this is if you're reading Paul's letters, when you start to see some of this language used, uh, like I skipped over 2 Corinthians 5.16, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, the old age. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We don't think in terms of the old age. We think in terms of the new creation, in terms of the new heavenly age. And so, all that to say, when you read Paul's letters, you're going to see these paradigms uh, all over the place and in different ways, and they're all talking about the same thing but with different emphases. They're all talking about the present reality of heaven on earth through the Christ event and through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That is cool. That is really, really cool. And so, what are some of the implications of this? So first, um, you know, when we think about um, we think about like uh, wanting to be more heavenly minded or wanting to like taste the reality of heaven, we think about ascending and transcending and like trying to get up there. When in reality, like the Holy Spirit dwells in you, uh, the, the, like the Holy Spirit is here. Christ has come. Like it, the heaven, we breathe heavenly air. Um, heavenly air because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us. We live in the kingdom of God here and now. Now, I don't want to, over, I don't want to oversell because, like I said, the present evil age is still, is still here. We still sin. We still sin. There's still evil. Uh, and that, you know, that, we won't be delivered to that until we die or until Christ comes back. If you want to come tomorrow, Jesus, I will take it. Um, but that's to say, to give us a sense that heaven is actually closer. So, Pursuing and seeking the joy of heaven, the intimacy uh, with God that we will experience in heaven, um, seeing the Lord as we will in heaven, it's not this way out there thing so much. I mean, it is in some ways. But in other ways, it's, it's, it's right here because the Holy Spirit is with us and we are in union with Christ. We are now citizens of the new creation. Next, great comfort. Great comfort. It's like... I don't have a good analogy, so I'm not going to say one because I'll probably butcher it if I do it off the top of my head. Never do that when you're teaching. Don't throw out an anal- Don't make up an analogy on the spot. But there is great comfort to know that, um, man. I don't know about y'all, but when I see kids studying for exams, sorry, if they're, sorry, Davis. When I see kids, and sorry, Laura, when I see people studying for exams, I'm like, oh, 
I am so glad that's over. <laughs> I'm so glad I don't have to do that anymore. Um, and there is this sense of like, you know, you kind of live on the back end. Uh, you live, you've gone through the really, really, really hard season, and now you've been delivered into a better season. There's a threshold that's been crossed, and that's true for us. That is true for you if you're a believer in Christ, that you have been brought into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and that's where you dwell. And, and, and it will only get better from here. It will only get better from here. Finally, uh, it helps us to seek a heavenly life. We're going to talk about this more in a, a few classes from now. But, um, by the way, I just look like an absolute Neanderthal with uh, eating a banana in front of this class. Um, golly, my parents are so embarrassed. Tell you what. Yeah. If it weren't for low class, you'd have no class. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, anyhow, uh, but yeah, I mean, it influences the way you live. Like, the way you live in heaven is going to be different than the way we live here. You know, the way that we treat people. Uh, the way that you know our perspective is all going to be different, and so realizing that we are, even though we're sinners, even though we're in the present age, but we are citizens of heaven. It, 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 it Paul is going to argue that that will inherently transform the way we live, as we conceive of ourselves as citizens of heaven now, and then finally um, we seek to bring others into the new heavenly age. Um, what a joy it is to have the assurance that you're a citizen of heaven. So it, it motivates us in evangelism. That'll be another class. Um, but anyhow, um, that and, and on, on point number four, Paul says this after he's talking about the new creation uh, in in Second Corinthians chapter five. He says, "All this is from God." Talking about the all this being the gospel, the the new um, the, the the new creation, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The thing that's cool here is the center of the new heavenly age, of the age to come, of the kingdom of God, of the age of the Spirit, of the new creation, all of this language. The center of it is Christ. It is being in union with Christ. So tasting, union with Christ means you are one with Jesus. And so having a life now that tastes as much and is experienced as much like heaven as possible is being as close to Jesus as possible. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. It is union and communion with Jesus. So that's the big encouragement. Keep things simple. Stay as, get as close to Jesus as possible. Everything else will take care of itself. All right, let me, let me pray for us. I'm not going to have much time to answer questions because um, I have to go back upstairs. But let's pray. Um, Jesus, thanks for loving us. Thanks for dying for our sins. And thank you. Thank you for the age that we live in. Uh, thank you for the promises of heaven. And Lord, I pray that more and more that these things would be real for us. Um, that we would have this great assurance. That we'd have this great sense of patience. And we would be really, uh, really, really tolerant of people. And um, I pray that this would give us great rest, Lord, that you have transferred us into this new heavenly age. So we trust you, Lord. We love you. Ask your prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.